It's a bonus episode. And How You Lead Matters first ever bonus episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with an incredible partner of ours, Kids Count in Delaware, and we discussed how we can make data matter for the people we live and work with. Enjoy! Hi everyone, and welcome to Strive's How You Lead Matters podcast, where we discuss everything leadership. From tapping into your motivation to feeling yourself with grit, we're here to support you as you discover the character-driven leader in yourself and those around you. I'm Caroline Lettner. And I'm Jared Smith. All right, everybody, we are here with two wonderful staff members of the Center for Community Research and Service at the Biden School of University of Delaware. We have Erin Nescott, who is a policy analyst for Kids Count in Delaware, and Janice Barlow, director of Kids Count in Delaware. I'm so excited to talk to you both. We're really excited to be here. Thank you so much for uh, um, for for giving us this uh, opportunity to talk a little bit about the data and all. Yes, thank you for having us. Of course, we're so excited. Um, I was just telling you both, but I will repeat it for our listeners. I think this is a unique episode in that we get to be a little bit, I'm going to use the word nerdier, but we get to be nerdier. We get to get into the numbers a bit here and, and talk about the statistics that really like frame the work that so many of our listeners do. We have listeners in all different areas of education, athletics, um, youth development in general. And so um, I kind of wanted to start off the bat with maybe having you both explain a little bit more about what Kids Count in Delaware is and what it does. Sure. So Kids Count in Delaware is a project of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. We are a national initiative and we are the Delaware entity. Um, As you noted, we are housed in the Center for Community Research and Service um, within the Biden School at the University of Delaware. Um, Though we are, we operate um, as our own, our own little thing here. Um, So each year our claim to fame, um, formerly called our fact book, and this year our focus book, we release each year um, that compiles data for kids and families in Delaware. Um, And that is our, again, our claim to fame, our key data product that we develop and put out each year. We also have another arm. Um, We dip into advocacy as well. So we use that data to inform policy. Um, We advise change makers, we like to say. Mm -hmm. We hope and hope to and know that we do provide and will continue to provide (laughs) data to policymakers, um, to nonprofits, to advocates that are working to make change and that work with children every day. Um, Hopefully some of your listeners. Um, And to accompany that fact book, we have other initiatives throughout the year. Caroline's actually featured on a (laughs) webinar that we held, and that was one of um, six throughout a series, and we write uh, briefs to accompany them, so lots of different products, all towards um, having the most up-to-date, cutting-edge data uh, about Delaware's kids. The biggest piece is um, if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. So data drives policy. It's, It's important to have Um, some of those stories and, and, you know, the personalization, but we need to know um, more, 
universally what exactly is happening. And so we're going to get to that place through data. And so I think that's kind of the, the basic premise of, of why we do what we do. Um, also, it, 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 there, there also becomes a measure of accountability that, that mm. comes along with that. Um, so when we measure something, we can look and see what is our trend over time? Are we getting better in this measure? Um, not only uh, looking at trends, but also how do we compare to others? You know, are we doing as well as the nation in this? Mm. Are we doing more poorly? Why? What's going on? We can dig into the, some of those questions a little bit more. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, for me, it's, it's about how can we do the best that we can um, in, in a more universal way yeah. um, by looking at kind of the landscape of, of what's happening out there. We are looking at how our kids are doing at any point in time. So that's really why we work to get consistent data updated um, yearly or in shorter amounts of time. Um, we want a pulse of that, of that feeling. And we talk a lot about quantitative versus qualitative data. Qualitative is um, those stories. So we use stories to communicate our data, but what we really rely on is that quantitative, those numbers, those statistics to target priority areas and help guide others in their decision-making. Um, when they have funds to use, when they have initiatives to roll out, when they see that there are windows of opportunity or gaps to be filled for our kids in our Delaware communities. Yeah, I mean, I think you, in again, in reading the fact book previously, I loved the juxtaposition of both the both types of data because it it tells a story i think sometimes the critique of statistics is that it almost becomes a bit too numb and it becomes a bit too depersonalized and so i really felt like you all do an excellent job of still ensuring that there are names and faces behind the numbers that you're representing and you're telling a story through those numbers and, and to that, I, I want to do another plug for the focus book. So Aaron this year um, was was really great and wrote um, sections, um, vignettes for each of our categories called focus through the eyes of a child. Wow. And it's really a, it's it's a vignette about how the how the the pandemic um, was seen through and through the eyes of uh, four different ch children. We have four sections. There's a child for each section and how it impacted them either through um, not being able to go to school and see their friends or a parent being laid off from work or, you know, and then we've matched that with kind of our own commentary on this is what the data says about how this child is experiencing what's going on. Um, and this is what the data says that that's happening on a much larger scale. And so that that's um, a really, really great piece of, of, you know, kind of getting both that qualitative and quantitative together um, and, and just another little plug for, for the focus. No, it's wonderful. I think at Strive, we talk about something called like multiple scoreboards and there's a whole game that goes along with it. But realistically, the purpose of it is to remind whoever is in our workshop that the importance of having multiple scoreboards. So essentially when we're talking about sport, and that's always the connection that I will make being a, a college soccer player and everything, is that there's one scoreboard for your games. And so the students and the athletes and who 
whomever that may not feel themselves represented in that scoreboard may lack the motivation and the drive to really participate because they're not they're not represented through that and so it is our job as educators as coaches as whomever to provide our students and and whoever we're talking to multiple scoreboards so that they can see themselves represented so if it's number of passes or it's in a classroom setting you know the type of participation rather than the grade or all sorts of things and and you guys just do such a wonderful job of showing the multiple scoreboards so instead of taking away a scoreboard we're just adding more so that everyone can feel represented right so when we think about taking that and then informing it to action, mm-hmm. you all have a lot of like webinars that you mentioned. What other ways do you help take these numbers and get them into the hands of the people that are, are taking action on them? One of my favorite things that we do is a legislative page a day calendar. So what we do is every year we have our book, it's released, um, and we know that you know it gets used by a lot of folks in our community. But we know that a lot of times decisions are being make, being made at the legislative level by policymakers, and so we've created a page of the, a page a day calendar, um, which is basically our book in bite-sized chunks, so that every day a legislator can rip a page off and know that um, here's a data point on what's happening with kids in the state. Wow. Um, and, and we've been doing this about five or six years now. Um, it's, it's been successful. We did go, um, virtual in the, in the 2021 because of COVID, but we are back to, you know, to, to physical copy. Physical pages. Um, physical pages. Um, we do run a social media campaign that mirrors the calendar. So day by day on both on, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, um, so that folks who aren't in the legislative hall can also follow along and know what it is that their legislator is seeing in, in any given day. Um, so that's that's one of my favorites. Erin, do you want to um, share some sure. others? I can elaborate. Um, so we serve on committees, um, different uh, various advisory type groups throughout the state. Um, An example, uh, one that's really active right now is the Childhood-Led Poisoning Prevention Committee. Um, We've been providing our data there and um, have gotten a lot of requests um, for just some descriptions and they're using it to inform advocacy. And um, another, um, I work with Help Me Grow, which is through um, 211, United Way, I serve to provide for all of their data needs um, and do some analysis with connecting. Their whole thing is um, providing resources to families. So families call in and need um, help with something concerning their child and help me grow guides them um, towards some different resources. So we track that um, through the group. So I'm able to use kind of my kids count skill for that data, but I can frame it. So a lot of people come to us for the framing. Um, they'll say, I have this data. How do I connect it with the state's data? How do I connect it at the county level? Can I connect it at the census level, the track level? How do I look at what I have and put it in the bigger picture from what the Kids Count data says? So a lot of requests like that really help us to expand our circle and our reach. That's incredible. I mean, that's, that's literally putting numbers into action and and taking, Mm -hmm. taking the information that you have and making it make a difference for the people that you are tracking. And so, um, 
you've talked a lot about all of the different numbers and the different research that you do. Um, getting specific, are there any numbers that have surprised you or shocked you or like any numbers that stand out in the past? So we were positive about um, the surprise factor and we thought about it and we wanted to note, we like to highlight disparities um, that we see consistently over time. Janice noted that the disaggregation is a big part of what we do. We push to um, look at data often in a granular way and then bring it back up to the larger state picture or comparative to other states or the nation. So we try to um, break things down. And in that, that gives us the ability to highlight disparities we see over time whether they be racial and ethnic related, income related, gender related, disability status connected. Um, And there are often very striking things that we find there, striking findings there um, that may surprise, um, sometimes validate concerns we had um, in in the anecdotal experiences, um, but sometimes they're good surprises as well. Um, we, we really like to highlight those um, with the COVID experience that we've all shared. We saw a lot of ups and downs um, in different data sources. An example, um, I work also on a team that does Medicaid um, analysis, um, Medicaid claims analysis. And so we work with like doctors that have research questions and we do data dives. One of the things that we chart in our fact book is Medicaid monthly enrollment. And because of the um, the sanctions put in place, Medicaid enrollment um, stayed, it rose and it was consistent throughout the pandemic because people could not lose their coverage per Mm. um, the emergency orders. So that was really fascinating to look at. And that's going to have an impact on how we're looking at health utilization through our other projects throughout this year. Um, So that's just an example um, of things that can surprise us and things that seem striking. Um, Janice, what else would you like to add to that conversation? Um, I would say, um, so I was I was saying to Caroline earlier, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I've, I've been working in data for so long. I'm not sure that much surprises me anymore. Right. Um, but <laughs> um, but but it's always interesting to look at some some trends and how things kind of flow. Um, and, and you gave um, some some good examples. Um, and one of the one of the pieces um, as you were talking that that I'm reminded of is um, maybe I was a little bit surprised. So so we know that the COVID you know with, with COVID happening there were a lot of policy decisions being made that really invested a lot of money into the social safety net and for kids in particular. Um, and the one that pops to mind for me is the child tax tax credit. It was expanded and it was made. Um, fully refundable and there was an advance. So so families with children were receiving money um, before tax uh, season happened. So they they were receiving uh, direct deposit payments twice a month from July through December. And what we saw with that nationally, the number of kids that were pulled out of poverty because of that cash influx into the family was 
um, tremendous. Wow. And um, and so I would say maybe not surprise might not be the exact word, and, yeah. and probably it's a little bit more disappointed. I'm I'm really yeah. sad that this did not get extended. Um, and and you know who, who knows with policy maybe it will, um, maybe it won't. Um, but what we're going to see is um, after kind of the 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 largest year of kid, getting kids out of poverty, we're going to see a year of the largest number of kids going back into poverty mm -hmm. because suddenly this support that was there and that was working, it was paying for basic needs. It was getting kids food and housing and, and the things that they need just to, you know, kind of make ends meet with as a family um, was then taken right back away. And so, um, so I, I would kind of, you know, point to point to different kind of policy decisions like that, that are either investments or disinvestments in our kids, and how they really impact the bottom line. And you can see that in the data, and you can see that in the numbers. Yeah, I mean, I feel like being part of a lot of different pitches and hearing a lot of different people explaining their thoughts on how to solve different issues that we're facing so frequently, the statistics are all negative. It's mm -hmm. always like, okay, this is, here's this big problem. And then here's our new idea to fix it. And so right. to hear that there's statistics on here's what's working. <laughs> like, here's what's actually going well. We don't get a lot of statistics like that, you know, so <laughs> and we got to hold on to those. And I mean, we can, we, we can look at previous policies. I mean, if you think back um, a few decades before the creation of social security and Medicare, um, our elderly population had a very, very high poverty rate. Mm -hmm. And that was why those policies were created. That's why they were implemented. And now, um, you know, the poverty rate for elderly is very, very low because of these policies that have been institutionalized over time. So if we can do it for one age group, we can do it for another. I mean, we can do it for kids too. Um, and we just have to look for those examples and, and have the political will in order to do it. And, and the understanding that when we invest in kids now, we're investing in our, all of our future because you know these kids that are, um, that we're that we're bringing up that we're supporting right now they're going to be our future lawyers and our future doctors and our future teachers and our future leaders i mean they are going to yeah. be the folks who are taking care of us when we're in a nursing home and you know um and so we need to make sure that you know for our own futures that we're investing the best we can right now in the kids yeah absolutely i mean it's in talking about, you know, the statistics that do or do not work when we're presenting situations and it's here's a problem and we can prove it by statistics. It's still a best guess when we're trying to fix it. You know, it's still, a, okay, well, here's this problem. And so my best guess is that I'm going to put this in, but we so frequently see negative side effects that weren't anticipated in that best guess. Um, and so having people like you collecting the information and being like, guys, it's right here. It's, you know, it's working. Are there any other statistics that you would want to highlight for our audience that you think, although maybe you might not be surprised by it, the general audience, maybe? I think the other one that comes to mind for me um, is right now, mental health, um, especially with the COVID pandemic. Um, COVID just 
really took its toll on all of us. Um, you know, we've never really faced anything like this before, and we're all having to figure this out. And so I think child mental health is kind of a, an area where there isn't as much data as we would like for there to be. And it's an area that not only do we need to beef yep. up um, content wise, but we need to beef up data wise. Um, yep. and, and would you add anything, Erin? Yes, I'd say the same. Um, it, there have been some horribly like striking statistics um, nationally on kids' mental health yeah. um, that have been published and connect, connected with the pandemic times. Um, and I think the social determinants of health as well, um, that's a big conversation. And we are working to, on the Medicaid side, like we're working to understand those more clinically, but they have such a presence in the community. They are the community. So putting those um, social determinants framed within our data and figuring out how they fit um, along with ACEs, average childhood experiences, um, those are kind of um, areas that we always talk about and always um, have in our discussions, but are increasingly working to understand and operationalize for Delaware's kids. And for those listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with the term social determinants of health, do you want to yes, yes. get a little bit into that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So the social determinants of health um, are defined technically as the social and communal uh, factors that play a role in a child or adult's uh, overall health. And they surround the the child so we talk about them from the kids lens for the kids count side um, and it's a wide range so housing food basic needs all play into um, what status a child's um, social health is um, Janice what other ones would you add for so our audience? I, mean, I I would just add that um, and not necessarily specific social um, indicators but um, I, I would say kind of the way I will describe it in, in a slightly less clinical um, yes. kind of uh, definition is the idea of where you grow up impacting how, what your health is, uh, that, that a zip code, you know, the zip code you're born into, the zip code that you're raised in impacts your outcomes. Um, and, and honestly, uh, when I talk about this, I, I go, it's, it's outcomes beyond health as well. I mean, it's educational outcomes and it's, um, economic outcomes um, as you as you kind of age and and uh, become um, more ingrained in in that part of society and everything. Um, so it, it's the idea that kind of what you're born into will shape a piece of your future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's it's significant to understand and see in numbers. I, I tend to be more of a right brain type person. I don't know if that's an outdated phrase, but that's definitely who I am. And so I am familiar with the anecdotes and familiar with the experiences, but then hearing some of the numbers that really prove those and, and kind of validate them. The other thing that stands out as significant to me is when you were talking about kind of mental health, some of the challenges that a lot of us often 
face when we're dealing with our own mental health is that kind of feeling of isolation or potentially shame around it. And so the fact that regardless of what legislation may come from statistics, the fact that someone who is struggling with their own mental health issues could look at numbers and realize that they're not alone in that struggle, that's powerful in and of itself. You know, that that feels like it fuels it. Yes, I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that way also with social determinants of health, right? There's a lot of shame associated when we feel like we don't have access to things that we should have, or we're asking for help for things. It's a difficult thing, but when you realize you're also not alone in that process, that's huge. And so getting these numbers in front of people, like I'm excited to, to blast this episode out everywhere so that people can go to you and, and see the numbers and understand where they lie in that and knowing that they're not alone, knowing that we're all going through some crazy stuff right now and our experiences of it are drastically different, but we, we are all definitely in this moment. And I just, I'm so grateful to have people like you doing this work so that we can understand it better. Um, just, just one other uh, piece to add. I mean, I, I know a lot of what we've been talking about is negative, you know, mental health and, and, you know, kind of crisis and things like that. Um, let, let's add a positive indicator and that's the, our dropout rate. Mm-hmm. Delaware has seen tremendous um, improvement in its dropout rate um, through, through the education s- statistics over the last decade. Um, the other positive that we've seen a long-term trend is in is a uh, teen pregnancy rate. Now, when we look at Delaware and honestly, the rest of the U.S. compared to other um, comparable nations, we're still not doing great. But compared to ourselves over time, that has decreased tremendously. And and so we we do see some bright spots in data as well. So and 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 I know like a lot of what we talk about is gloom and doom. So I always like to try to get in, you know, the No, it's, it's good to highlight both. And I feel like there there's significance in both of it. I mean, again, personally, it's very exciting for me and my passion for the education space in Delaware to know that we are at least trending in the right direction. And I have been able to see some of the behind the scenes on some of the work that is being done to, to take right. those rates lower. Mm-hmm. And so like, I can take a deep breath right now, knowing that numbers are going in the direction that we want it to. Again, still a lot of work to do, but but being part of organizations like the Teen Warehouse, being on the Wilmington Learning Collaborative, all of those sorts of things, like, there are people here that really care about it. And another thing, I don't know if you all share this, and I, I said, say this a lot, and I also didn't expect myself to say this a lot as a Delaware transplant, but... Um, The unique thing about Delaware is that it is such a small state, but we have so many different representations of different communities in this small little state. So you drive two hours and you are in rural Delaware, like you are in a drastically different community than you were in Wilmington, Delaware. The communities within Wilmington are drastically different. And so we're able to have statistics that are representative of issues that our country is facing in different communities but they're spaced out. And so it's harder to, to do that. And so that's kind of been my excitement about some of the work that happens in Delaware is that we get to test things out here and try things out. And if it works, they can work for communities that are similar to them in other states and in other spaces. 
Um, so that's a great point. Yeah, a good we, observation. We, we yeah. love that Delaware is we we call it the microcosm of the US. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a much more succinct way of saying what I just said. <laughs> no, I mean, it's great. It's great. Yeah. The, the other piece that uh, as you were talking, I thought you were going to go down a, a different line of thought than you did. One of the things, um, one of the challenges of data collection in Delaware is that we do have that representation and, and the self-identity in so many different ways across such a small piece of so when we're when we're creating data um, and we want to talk um, sub sub county level because you know no one really says I'm from Newcastle County I'm from you know that's not how you identify typically in Delaware yeah. but within the counties we all identify differently so in Newcastle County you tend to identify oh I'm Newark or I'm Newcastle or yeah. um, even within Wilmington, I'm East Side, or I'm you know like the different pieces of Wilmington. Um, however, as you go into more rural areas of of more southern um, pieces of Delaware, folks tend to identify with their school, with with their school district. Um, and and the community that kind of surrounds the school is much more. Um, I, I would say, you know, kind of uh, cohesive than than the schools, and and maybe that has something to do with, um, with with the charters and the choice and things like that that happen in Newcastle County. I'm not an expert in that, so I won't kind of go down that line. But but the way people identify themselves is different, um, or or rather, identify their community is different depending on where you are in the state too. And so that's that that kind of creates a challenge for data and in, in how do we um, show their, this community what it is that they look like using quantitative data. Interesting. I never would have thought of that dynamic before, but I definitely see it. I even, like when I moved, I grew up outside of Boston. And so when I moved to Delaware, and even just experiencing neighboring states like Pennsylvania as well, I noticed that trend of associating with schools and like, yeah, even like bigger like counties versus towns like where I grew up when you were leaving a town and going into another one it was like tangible you know like you cross <laughs> you cross the town line it was totally a thing every town is like the very stereotypical like New England town so it's got a town center and then you kind of go into the outskirts and then you go into the outskirts of the next town like so I would never have associated with people from other towns like we were big on school rivalries. We were big on that whole thing. And then I moved here and people were like, oh, you know, I'm from this county or like I went to this school and I'm like, no, no, no. Like what town did you live in? And it wasn't the same association. So it's so interesting that you share that. So one thing that I wanted to ask you all as we like continue to talk about statistics our listeners, it's, it's a varied group. We've got coaches, we've got educators, but I think all of us are facing the same problem is there is almost too much data out there and there's too much data being presented in different ways that makes it difficult to know what is more accurate or what may have been adjusted slightly to fit a narrative. So when our listeners are going out into the world and collecting data and absorbing it and reading it and perhaps talking to the people that they influence, what advice do you have to them to kind of determine what statistics and what information we should be looking at and what we can kind of pass off? Um, I would say, first of all, know your source um, and, and understand 
why it's being collected, who's collecting it, you know, what they're collecting it for. Um, there, there are very reputable sources of data um, on, 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 on a lot of these uh, topics. There are folks who will take um, data that's not as accurate and, as you said, kind of represent it for their own means or, or their own benefit um, or, or a, a different um, piece. So um, I, I would say, you know, if in doubt, um, double check through a source that you already know is reliable. And, yeah. and those uh, sources tend to be, you know, Census Bureau is a great one. Um, and, and they produce um, American Community Survey. They produce um, the, the CPS. They, they, they have a wide variety of, of pieces of, of information. Um, Others throughout the state, um, a lot of state government organizations, you know, state government entities will collect data and disseminate it. Um, I, I think if in doubt, ask questions. Um, I, I always look to see, um, to, to question um, how large was the sample size, you know, uh, how you know, are we talking about, you know, if we're talking about 50% of our users say X, Y, and Z, is it 50% of 10 people that were asked or is it 50% of a thousand? Because that makes a real big difference, yeah. um, especially depending on where you were asking geographically those 10 people or, you know, uh, kind of what, where, like, if, if it was a, a meeting of, um, you know, a, a, a group that had, it has a particular focus. Yeah. Um, there are groups out there like Kids Count and um, Population Reference Bureau and um, Center for uh, Applied Demography and Survey Research who, who work with numbers a lot. And so we're a resource. So if you're not sure about a data source, you can always reach out to, you know, someone who does work with data a lot and ask the questions you know, um, I'm, I'm seeing this data. I'm not sure it's totally accurate. Can you give me some advice? Um, yeah. And maybe we can point to a different data source that would be our go-to, or um, we could, you know, help develop, you know, some of those questions that you should be thinking about before, um, before resharing. Erin, um, would you add? Um, the biggest thing I thought of, I think that is all wonderful. Um, we, I catch myself a lot when pooling together data, the geography, so looking at what level. Um, I work with um, a lot of national databases, and, and an example of it is um, the Area Deprivation Index. So it, it's an index that pulls together tons of indicators and gives a score. So there are a lot of indicators. There are health ones, um, health literacy indices, there, which is really cool. It's looking at like the health literacy and, but they're at certain levels. So like they're at the zip code or they're at the state level or county level. And you just have to take caution because you need to describe what the level is. If it's at the county level, um, that's a big space. So someone that lives in that county may associate with that score or they may not. They have a very different experience because it's in aggregate. Um, or if you're looking state level, not everyone has the same state experience, but we're looking at the 
big picture. So just being aware of what geographic level you're at and how you're connecting that to um, your story is, is good to be aware of. Um, but always double checking, looking at your sources. Those are the tried and true um, caution areas, I would say, but it's a really good question. It's a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I think something as simple as sample size is missed by a lot of us, um, especially when we are looking for something quick and we want it to fit into a story that we're trying to tell. Like, yeah. it, it's so easy to find the statistic that is like what you're saying, you know, 50% of our listeners. And it's like, well, first off, of course, you know, there are, you're already isolated right. based on your listeners, whatever it may be. But for somebody who's may not be as familiar with statistics for somebody who's just like, you know, it's the youth coach at, at the, for the basketball team, whatever it may be, that person may not catch those little nuances. Right. So now having it's that, hard. yeah, having that reminder makes such a big difference. Um, and it, it could really change the world. I think so. It matters. With, with that conversation, just understanding data in general too, and how COVID impacted data, um, because COVID did have some impacts. And so, what you know, the the idea that while there is a lot of data coming out at us, um, we don't have data on everything. Yeah. Um, and COVID made you know, COVID caused um, some methodological issues where we have data gaps, where um, data that previously had been collected couldn't be collected because of the health precautions that were put into place. Um, we have some data that will be coming out during, uh, th that was collected during the COVID era, era which um, we have data, but it's not comparable to pre-COVID because yep. of changes in either survey design or you know some of that back-end stuff um, that, that's going on. And so just kind of um, educating yourself enough to have a general understanding of some of these possibilities of, of change and, and understanding that it may not always be um, a always be comparable, always be available, always be, um, you know, as reliable as you would like it to be, yeah. um, you know, might be something that's, that's kind of out there as well. Um, it's just an added layer. Yeah. yeah that's I a mean, good way to put it. This is a weird comparison, but I'm going to go there for a minute, see if sure. anybody else understands it. Um, I use the Nike Run Club app when I ever get myself to go out for a run. It's rare, but I do it sometimes. And it has a feature on there that can tell your speed. So it can tell you kind of how fast or slow you're running. In my case, usually slow, but here we are. And there was one day where it finally clicked and it should have clicked for me a while ago where I would be running and I would look at it and I'd be like, God, like, I feel like I'm running faster than this or like, there's no way I'm going that fast. And I realized that that number is only representative of what I was doing the past five minutes or what I was oh. doing the past three minutes, because it's calculating it based on how far I've come and the amount of time it took me to go. But it's not the exact moment. And that's what statistics is always going to be. Statistics is always going to be looking at what we did previously, getting those numbers. It's difficult to get numbers that represent exactly what's happening right now. And so like, that was something definitely that hit in COVID era, like when, when lockdowns were more frequent was like, 
these numbers are based on hospitalization rates two weeks ago. So like we're collecting what's happening right now. Um, and again, just having that awareness, just having that realization of, okay, this is what these numbers are telling me and, and being more educated on what the numbers are actually telling us doesn't yeah. mean that statistics are bad or wrong or anything, mm-hmm. but it's just, all right, this is the frame for it. Yes. It's, it's, it's all about the context. Yeah. Yeah. About- yeah, absolutely. So you all do an incredible job, um, with, with combining the qualitative and the quantitative with, with combining all of that. And you are clearly leaders in, in the space, um, because of the amount of effort and love that you put into the work. So I have to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests. Um, you can take it in whatever order you want to, but how do you define leadership? Karen, do you want to jump off? Sure. Um, so the first thing I think of, um, in terms of leadership is who we work with. So we like to say that we work with champions for kids, um, and, we purposefully partner with leaders of movements at any given time that are making the biggest differences for kids, um, i.e. those from communities with lived experiences. So those webinars um, like that you were featured on and that you've learned so much about, when we do panelist searches, we specifically look for those that are leading um, movements for kids in their current field. May not be the biggest movement, it may not be the smallest, but they're leading and making an impact, and we want to share their stories. So we feel that we serve to elevate those voices of those that are working the closest with kids and or elevating kids' voices. Um, So that's one element. Um, And one example, um, I'm not sure, are you familiar with Harper's Heart? I actually Um, am not. Okay, so um, we featured the founder of Harper's Heart, the nonprofit, and we were able to um, feature that leader. Um, they earned a leadership award through the Kids Count in Delaware and then was featured within our webinar series, um, highlighting her lived experience as a young mom. And she now uses that power within her nonprofit to help other moms and babies. So that's just an example of how we highlighted a leader and then also featured a leader um, within our work to partner and to elevate that mission. Um, so that's one kind of one way we see leadership. Um, Janice, would you like to expand? Um, sure. So um, I, I think um, I think one of the other ways, and again, I kind of come back to data and how have we quantified leadership and how have we yep. looked at it and, and those yep. types of things. And I think one of the pieces that, that we yep. have tried, um, it's, it's the same, I think, concept and same ideas, maybe a little bit different terminology. We've talked about um, kids having internal and external drivers, um, yep. developmental assets, um, and you know, just the idea of perfect, protective factors and, and whether they are internal pr- protective factors or external prote- protective factors. For instance, you know, does this um, child um, have a desire in order to improve, you know, some, some of those internal characteristics. Um, and then the external pieces would be more of, does this child have a mentor, um, a, an adult other than a parent that they can go to and talk to, um, and, and how we kind of have quantified it in the past. Um, it's the idea of building resilience, um, which kind of circles right back to the, you know, the whole um, childhood 
uh, adverse childhood experiences conversation and, and building resilience in order to um, overcome. But I, I, I think it's even more than that. It's, it's having those protective factors and, and having that resilience built up so that you can just excel in, in life, um, whether or not you're facing challenges and whether or not you're um, kind of having those aces and, and, and pieces. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I think, um, yeah, so, so those developmental assets and, and mirroring um, a number of the, the tenets of, of strive leadership, but maybe having a little bit different terminology in, in yeah. how, we've, how we've kind of framed it in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think you all just proved our, the first leadership myth that we like to bust is that there's one right way to lead and there are many different ways to lead. And um, Aaron, when you were speaking, one thing that popped out to me is we talk in some of our workshops about followership. Followership okay, has gotten yeah. a really, really bad rep. You know, it sounds negative. Nobody wants to be a follower. Nobody, everyone wants to lead, you know, but being in a circle of people and elevating those people and, and choosing to follow a intentional group of people matters. And by understanding the recognition that you all have, and therefore being able to elevate certain voices, like the nonprofit that you mentioned, mm -hmm. all like elevate stories, that is a form of followership. And it's so beautiful that you all prioritize that in your work, because then it gets people to pay attention to the things that we need to pay attention to, because we have a lot coming at us. And so having people like you organize it and tell us, all right, here's what we got. Here's what we got to focus on really matters. And then um, Janice, to hear kind of your comments on the type of things that we know are important for our students, for our youth to have. And Strive has known it for a while. I'm like, I'm becoming less fun at parties now because I can't stop myself from talking about it. Like, you know, we need these skills. We need communication. We need empathy. We need mentors. We need all of that stuff. And so it's just, I love talking to like-minded people about these things. That's wonderful. Is there anything else that you all would like to highlight or um, leave our listeners with? Again, all of the resources that you have mentioned will be on our description of this podcast. So if you're interested in checking those out, um, feel free to look at that. But is there anything else you would want to highlight for our listeners before we go? Um, I would say we do have a monthly e-news uh, that, that if folks want to sign up for, we can um, add that to your uh, list as well. That there's a sign up list on um, dekidscount.org. Um, and, and that way, you know, because, you know, data is constantly coming out. It, things are changing. We, we publish about different um, data products and also research that's happening, policy concerns, um, and just kind of keeping up to date in, in this realm and, and understanding um, some of the ways to become involved. We include information about the webinar series that, that Aaron talked about earlier in the podcast um, and, and all kinds of resources that are available to folks um, that, that that's a really good resource to mention as well. Yeah, and I would just say that we are so grateful for um, Strive, for the community support that's provided. Um, we really tend to think of kids, um, we try not to silo and yeah. there's a whole child approach and there's so much that surrounds a child's life and having organizations um, such as yours 
to support and play a role um, in really makes a big difference. So thank you for the work that you do as well. And know that we're always here to provide uh, data, to provide clarification, interpretation. Um, and to our listeners, um, feel free to, as Janice said, subscribe and reach out. Um, we're always looking for new partnerships. And we are working to, to provide and be that data lead um, for Delaware. So thank you for this opportunity. No, thank you. Again, despite some of the challenging numbers that we're all seeing, like this has been a very tank filling experience for me. It's so I'm, I'm grateful for it and glad to feel that it's mutual as well. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who tuned in today. How You Lead Matters podcast comes out on a monthly basis. And if you are looking for more content, where should they look, Jaren? You can follow us on all socials at How You Lead Matters or email us today to schedule your own Strive workshop. Talk to you next month. Peace.